It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today I am so excited to have Nor Pinna with us. Nor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jill. Where in the world are you? Uh, currently, I'm located in the Hudson Valley of New York. Okay, very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Nor. Nor has been a licensed mental health counselor and transformative mindset coach within her private practice for the past six years. She helps women break free from the barriers of shame, become empowered to advocate and gain self-confidence, create resiliency to get back up, establish self-care rituals, learn tools to create healthy boundaries and become a leader in their universe. Nor has done international mental health work specifically helping Afghan women. In 2019, Noor delivered her first TED Talk on shame resilience. She is in the process of publishing her first book, The Sun Still Rises, which discusses themes of spirituality, faith, inner child wounds, compassion, self-love, and resilience. And she can be found at norpinnacoaching.com. And I will leave you information on the podcast, on the show notes, so you can get a hold of her there after we talk with her. So um, boy, you do a lot of different things, but all under the umbrella of, of helping women. I just, um, I'm just fascinated by all of your work. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's I wear multiple hats and I don't always recognize that. But then when I'm talking <laughs> to people, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, first of all, um, you know, we have a whole list of questions, but I just wanted yeah. to um, ask you a little bit about what um, your perception is or what your knowledge is of what's going on in Afghanistan right now. Um. Okay, so this is my personal experience with the people that I know, Um, you know, part of it is just watching the news, Um, definitely not an expert, so I can, um, and I don't have the lay of the land, so that's just a disclaimer, but um, from the people that I've interacted with, and the friends that we know, and the family that we've, we've become like the friends that have become family, you know, um, it's been a dire situation, And, you know, some people have been able to get away and escape, thank God, and some people have not been able to, and so they're stuck where they are, and most of the women that I know are educated, and, you know, they've held jobs, and, um, you know, or they're they're in different roles of government, and um, so it's been really hard for them specifically, in terms of um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
being terrified, I guess, like, and, mm. the, and that's a feeling that most people can kind of relate to, like, that humanity aspect of, like, what's going to happen next, you know, so they're in a time of uncertainty, um, and, you know, they're just trying to keep safe and trying to, trying to keep it together, you know, and, like, yeah. literally take day by day, and, you know, I was talking to my friend Barai, and, you know, he's got two little kids and his wife, you know, and, and they're, and it's just like, it's heartbreaking because you're just like, I'm going to pray for you. And that's all I can do because mm-hmm. I, I wish I could take you out of that situation, you know? And, and is the, and, is the plight of women uh, real or is that perceived or are women really scared for their safety? No, it's, it's real, you know, it's, it's definitely real. Like you hear stories of women who are burning their degrees, you know, or hiding them as best as they can um, because they don't want the Taliban to know that they're educated in that sense because of what might happen, you know? And so I can't speak for every woman that's there, but the ones that I have talking to, they, they definitely are scared, but they do, there is this like resilience that like we have lived for like X amount of time without the Taliban and we will resist as much as we can, but within the safety parameters of what we're able to do, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. Wow. Well, thanks for that perspective. I, I knew you had some, some roots there. Um, let's go back and uh, go a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself and your childhood and growing up. You have a, you have an interesting story. So would you mind sharing some of that? Sure. Not a problem. I was born in Pakistan and I was there till I was five or six. Um, my dad walked out the back door um, and that's when my, uh, it just happened that my grandmother flew in, um, you know, a day later after my dad left um, and was just like, told my mom, like, you're all coming to America, you know? And so my mom had to decide whether she had to uh, leave all the kids at home uh, with my dad or bring all the kids here to America because she didn't want to split them up. Um, And part of, I'm not going to get into all of that uh, partially because it's her story to tell, not my story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I assume it must have been a really hard decision for her as a young woman. You know, she was only 19, I believe. And so she came to America and uh, didn't know a word of English. Um, so my childhood was, uh, I was raised by my grandparents who are, um, were Shia, were a minority um, and were very, very religious in that sense, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was very much like, you have to know your culture, you have to know the language, you have to eat the food, dress the way that you do, because you don't want to get lost in becoming an American, because Mm -hmm. you don't want to forget your cultural heritage and roots in that sense. And I think I hated that for the longest time, because I was just like, an immigrant and an outsider. And there was a lot of out. I stood out and there was a lot of shame surrounding that because I was just always like, oh my God, like, why can't I just be normal? Like, I want people to like me, you know, like didn't get invited to like birthday parties and things like that, you know? Um, And then my mom would come 
and she'd be speaking in her broken English. Um, and that was like embarrassing for me at that time. And now I look back at it and I'm like, there's nothing to be embarrassed about or mm-hmm. to be ashamed about. But as a child, it, it has an impact on you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom learned English at Wendy's and at Dunkin' Donuts because that's how wow. they taught that that's how they taught her. You know, she had some ESL classes at a local library, but that's primarily where she picked up her English. Um, she worked two jobs and raised us here. So, you know, I had trauma when I was in Pakistan and then I had trauma when I came here. So my childhood was very much rift with like moments of joy, but a lot of, a lot of trouble that was occurring, you know, and, there was a struggle of identities that was occurring. When I look back at it, I didn't know that's what it was, you know, but being Pakistani and being Muslim and then trying to assimilate um, and being an American and what that meant, you know, and exploring all the things and like, why did we come here? We came here because we wanted to have a better life. We wanted to have freedoms. We wanted to X, Y, and Z, but then how do you nurture and keep your original, like, as much as possible, your cultural heritage, right? And, well, it's and- almost like it's almost like you're trying to hold two cultures with the same hand, and mm-hmm. and they don't always they don't always meld into each other really well. Some you, there's yeah. there's both a distinctness and a withness that you want, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a constant struggle, and then I started wearing my hijab, and and that like was like. I think at that time I was probably the only Muslim in my elementary school at that time and then wore a hijab. And then I was like, and that was an experience that I don't, um, that was interesting to say the least, because like, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, and, and people were nice and some people weren't, some people didn't understand. And like, so you have to explain, um, as best as you could as like a 50, uh, I was in fifth grade when my mom was like, okay, it's time to wear the hijab, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, and then I stopped wearing my hijab when 9-11 happened because of all the stuff that occurred and um, because of safety reasons, you know? Um, And then I didn't wear my hijab for a long time. And then I felt called to wear my hijab. And so I've always noticed them when I choose to wear my hijab, uh, versus when I don't wear my hijab, doors either open or doors either shut. So there mm. is a distinction that is made based on the presumption of what I'm wearing and how I'm wearing it, even within my own community and within the outside community. Is there um, is there pressure to wear the hijab or is that a personal decision? How is that decided? So there's no compulsion in our religion. You know, Um, you're recommended to wear the hijab, um, but you don't have to, you know, and that's my understanding of it. Of course, if you go to scholars and you do, you know, they will say different things, but I believe that it is the personal relationship between you and Allah or you and God, right? Like what you choose to wear, because, you know, like people can wear hijabs, right? And, and 
be doing everything that's not what we call halal in Muslim, in the Mm -hmm. Muslim world, right? Um, And, but then there are women that don't wear the hijab that are completely doing things in quotations in halal way, right? And being faithful, yeah. And being faithful. So the hijab is just an identifier to the outside world that you are Muslim, right? Okay. So um, for me, it's, it's, I wear it because I felt called to it. Um, and I think there's something beautiful about it. Um, you know, I don't wear it at home. I don't wear it in front of my family, you know, but I wear it in front of like strangers now. And, and I go back and forth. So I call myself sometimes a seasonal hijabi, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so like, but that's my relationship with my hijab and my God, right? Like, and so yeah. people can say whatever they want, but it's, it's a unique relationship with you and God. Are you encouraged with, um, like I noticed with, um, professional athletes and with the Olympics that there are more, uh, women that are allowed to be more covered. Um, is that encouraging to you? It is. It's nice to see the representation, you know, like Mm -hmm. even when I wasn't wearing the hijab, it was like, Oh my gosh, there's someone there. So if someone, if a young girl is like, you know, I'm on this journey and I want to wear my hijab, like, how am I going to look, how am I I going to be perceived and to have these role models, you know, um, it's amazing. And I just, it brings more inclusion, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and diversity to the playing field and saying like, look, like there's someone like me on stage that's gone through the trouble and the hardship and now is paving a path for me. So no matter how hard it may be for me, I know someone's done it. And I also have a role model to do that. I think for those of us who are minorities, uh, representation is a huge conversation and a huge uh, awareness. And I think if you're part of the majority group, you don't recognize that as much, but it really does matter who you see on screen and who you see in stories and books and, 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 you know, on the playing fields, it really makes a huge difference on how you perceive and accept and welcome your own self to the table. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. It's just, it's, you know, when I was in DC, it's, you know, wearing a hijab just seemed normal and accepted, you know, because there were so many people and so many women just like wearing it, you know, mm-hmm. um, where I live currently, there's some, I don't often see them, you know? So mm-hmm. I remember like when I first wore my cultural clothing, like people will either compliment you or don't know what to say, or will say like derogatory things to you, okay. you know? So it's always like three different types of responses that you get, you know? Right. You can categorize um, them. <laughs> yeah. And so I think part of the shame building is not allowing these narratives to take hold and say like, you're not good enough and you're not worthy enough and that you don't fit or belong. Instead, you have to say to yourself, like um, you are worthy, you are good enough and you can be proud of who you are. And despite of what you're wearing, you can still be a proud American, you know, that it doesn't detract from your 
roots of where you're being planted in that moment. Right. Absolutely. So where does your passion for helping women to work through their own personal trauma come from? Oh, um, so here's a background. I want actually wanted to, as in most, um, Pakistani or slash Desi cultures, you know, we often become doctors, right? Like that's the thing. Um, so I wanted to be a heart surgeon and I, uh, could not be a heart surgeon because I was terrible at math and my organic chem teacher at, um, at my university that I went to just flat out told me like, you're never going to get into med school and like 19 or 18 believing her, you know? And Mm. then I went to my bio teacher and I was like, I'm not going to get into med school. What am I supposed to do? Like my parents are going to be so disappointed. And she was like, well, why don't you try your hand at this, this, and this. And she's like psychology. And I just looked at her and I was like, what? Um, (laughs) I cry. I'm hysterical all the time. Right. So I, I take a a psychology class and there's this young woman, uh, she's 32 and you know, the sun is just beaming in on her. She's at the podium and I, and for the love of God, I cannot remember that professor's name, but she made an impact on me and she had her own private practice. She had a PhD and she was teaching. And I was like, that's what I want to do, mm. you know? And so that's how I came into the field of psychology. And in, then in terms of how I wanted to help women, um, specifically through their trauma and just like their personal empowerment cycle, I think has to now do with my own journey of what I've gone through and specifically like working with like Muslim women, you know, because I've gone to therapy and my, my mom never knew that um, because it was such a taboo subject um, because you don't, you know, like you don't talk about your stuff to outsiders. You talk about it within family, but the way we were raised, it was like, you put everything under the carpet and then Mm, you just, and you don't talk about it and you don't talk about it. Right. And I was like, this just does not feel right to me. And so, um, my first experience of therapy was with a, um, with a male And he just told me, you're 18, you live in America, you can do whatever you want. And I was just like, you have no idea about my culture. You don't understand it. And you wouldn't be saying that if you knew what I was going through. So like, after a while, I just left him. And then I said, this is not, this is not the type of therapist I want to become, you know, as I look Mm -hmm. back at it. So I've gone through a lot of personal trauma you know, like when I was in Pakistan, like I was abused by our neighbor um, and our bus driver. And um, so that happened when I was young. And then when I came to America, I had some other types of abuse that occurred for me. And then I found a wonderful therapist that I had for like, I think like seven to eight years. And he just, he had to retire last year due to um, an issue that he was dealing with. And, um, and in that process of that journey, I learned so much about shame and resilience Mm. and the way that we talk and DBT and cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, I knew the theories because I went to school and I was applying them in my own life. Um, and in my therapy, but 
the way that like my mentors and my therapists were teaching them, I was like, wow, like, and this is how it truly works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fascinating that like, I could take my pain, I could take my trauma, my abandonment issues, the things that my dad did, you know, the rejection that I felt and the, the core beliefs that were developed because my dad chose to walk out the back door, you know, and never look back again and, um, Mm. and didn't provide any type of support to be able to say today that I can laugh at that pain because I've done the work, like, cause you can't laugh at something in a self-deprecatory way, because right. that's not, that's not healing. You know, right. I can find joy. I can find like when people would, would say like, God has a plan for you and he's testing you. And this is why he put you through this. It would make me so angry. Like, oh, that's yeah. not, you know, like that's not what people want to hear. And it's not what I tell my clients, you know, like, yeah, maybe there is a plan for the universe or the cosmos right. or whatever, but and you will grow, th- you will grow through situations, but that isn't the purpose, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know why I went through what I went through, but I know the lessons that I learned and the lessons that I learned were, I am a much more compassionate and empathetic person than I could ever, ever have been. Like, Mm -hmm. I I believe that I would have been empathetic and compassion, but not at the level that I am now, you know, Um, I, I am able to find a silver lining because I'm able to look at things from a gratitude perspective, you know, I'm able to look at things with a loving, compassionate eyes. I'm able to say, that I can forgive even to the people that hurt me, that left me, that betrayed me and say a prayer for them. And that was not an easy thing. And that's not something everybody chooses to walk down that road and that's okay. But I'm not forgiving them. I'm forgiving myself. And Mm -hmm. that's the difference, right? Like I'm not forgiving myself in the sense that I did something wrong. I'm forgiving myself because it was not my responsibility. Right. You know, do you feel like, and and this is kind of a wide blanket question, but do you feel like women deal with, um, has struggled with shame and resiliency more than men do? Or is it just a different struggle? I think it's a different struggle. There's definitely women definitely struggle with it more, I say, but having talked to like men from like the Muslim culture, you know, um, I've noticed the level of shame that they have. And it's, Mm -hmm. it is, it it is a different level of shame that, and the men that I work with are young men and they're recognizing the entitlement that they had as, as young, as young men, you know, or teenagers and, how they don't want that entitlement, how they want to change that narrative. And they realize that their sisters didn't have the same, um, you know, rights in a sense, or, um, right. You know, the accessibility to things that they might've had that they took for granted and they want to change that narrative and they want to take ownership of that and like, and help their sisters. And 
and be more active in women's rights and things like that. And so that narrative that's changing with the men that I'm talking to is a beautiful narrative, you know, and they're all about personal development and growth and things like that. And then the women that I'm dealing with, you know, their shame is much more different in that sense. So shame impacts men and women very differently um, in that sense. But there is that the the underlining theme of what shame is, is the Mm -hmm. same, you know, that it's isolating and that it um, makes you feel like no one's going to understand. And it's like Bernie Brown calls it like the self-made prison, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and I was just, you're kind of answering that already, but I was just going to ask what is so toxic about shame? So the thing about shame is, you know, So I'm going to quickly go over like what shame and guilt is a little Mm -hmm. bit. Okay. So shame is it's, it's labeling behavior. I am a mistake that there is something inherently wrong with me. Therefore I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, worthy enough, like those core belief statements. And therefore I don't deserve anything that's coming to me Mm -hmm. where guilt is a motivator. It says, I made a mistake. Therefore, I can do something to change how I feel because Mm -hmm. there's remorse in it, right? And so we we, we create actions to change that feeling. Whereas in shame, we sit with that feeling and we're surrounded by Mm -hmm. it. And we don't do anything about it because it just is this prison that we create for ourselves because again like I never talked about my dad leaving us you know and the impact that my dad had on me until I was able to go to therapy like I would break down anytime someone was like oh they would talk about their dad or I would see a child playing with their dad like I literally would just be like oh my gosh I'm missing out on all of this mm-hmm. and now I'm like I can talk about it without breaking down or without crying because I have processed that within boundaries you know right. I I'm not hiding it it's no longer a secret it's not you know it's none of those things and sometimes we should or shame ourselves to think that we're motivating so we can move forward um, to, you know, better ourselves in quotations, you know, and that's toxic because what we're not allowing is compassion and grace and kindness and gentleness to enter right. into the conversation. Well, and it's about, it's about ownership too. Um, some situations we don't need to own the responsibility of that. And, and, you know, like in the case of your father, you don't own that responsibility and you can't carry that shame. Um, and, and with guilt, there's, there's ownership there too, to say, this is something that I can change or something that I, that I did and I can do something about. I heard somebody say that, uh, shame is carried guilt. You know, Mm. it's, it's taking guilt and just, just making it your burden and, Um, and, and taking on that, that mantle of all of that. So, um, what, um, you do, um, counseling, you have psychology, you have art degrees, what, um, how, how does art play into your work? Oh, 
Um, I love art therapy. So I have a minor, I have a minor in it. And I just got done with doing a certification in um, it's called healing arts, uh, healing trauma through creative arts. And um, it's such a fascinating field, because sometimes when I have clients, that are not able to talk about their trauma that are not able to process it cognitively, right? Like, because talk therapy can only get you so far at times. Mm -hmm. So I utilize the, the art approach. Let's make something, let's paint something, let's do face mask. Let's, I'm going to give you a prompt. I want you to paint something. I want you to listen to a cello music and I want you to paint whatever comes to your mind and whatever then occurs after that, we're going to process that. And so lots of things can occur in that process. Emotions can arise because a lot of wisdom lies within our bodies. And if anyone's read the book, um, the body keeps a score, mm-hmm. you know, Bessel van der Kolk, and, a, excellent yeah, book. it's an excellent book. Like we know that our trauma is stored in our body. And so sometimes talking about it is not enough. So doing something creatively and tapping into that can help process what is happening. And then we can, we can talk about the process. We can talk about the emotions. And then sometimes people don't want to talk about the subject. So then I ask them, well, why don't we process what your emotions are around the subject without talking about the subject? So let's paint something. Let's do a body movement. Let's do some mindful breathing. Mm -hmm. Let's do a visualization. Let's do something. Um, that can help you move or shake things. You know, sometimes I'll ask them to go floating, you know, or I'll ask them to go to an acupuncturist to move their energy around um, and then come back and talk to me about what's happening or go to a sound bath healing, you know, or do like a, yo- like a yoga um, class or something. And, and all of those uh, different modalities with the creative arts is, again, to move the body in a way that sometimes talking can't move it. And then we process it by examining what's happening. Absolutely. If that, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And um, it, it makes sense to me personally, because um, as dealing with my mental health, I have had, um, I've had exposure to lots of different modalities to help me process trauma. And it's really amazing when you bypass that cognitive part of your brain, and mm-hmm. that creative brain takes over it. Um, it accesses, it accesses places that your cognition just cannot or will not go. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I wonder again, one of these big global, global questions, but, um, what do you think BIPOC women are dealing with, um, mostly right now? Um, there are a lot of challenges right now for uh, always have been for BIPOC women. So I'm wondering what you, what your perception is on some of the challenges we face. Well, there's a lot of issues, right? Um, if you just look at social media itself and the news around it, like you, you can categorize like everything that's happening in the world today, right? Um, 
you've got issues that range from just being a minority, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And being a woman and what that means in a world that is, you know, where where the majority is white, right? Mm -hmm. And and your voice isn't really heard and you're bypassed a lot of times because your idea isn't as valued um, or you're not seen because someone else is... uh, more lighter skin tone than you because there's this systematic racism or oppression that's occurring. Um, But then there's also these internal dialogues that we're having within ourselves, right? Like of who we are, identity and being proud of that identity. Um, And then there's issues that of shame that reside within that. And a lot of that from the women that I deal with, a lot of it, it's cultural, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then trying to find an identity again in the midst of what is happening. How how are we being authentic? How are we being vulnerable within the boundaries that we create? You know, and boundaries is a huge thing. How do we not engage in people-pleasing behaviors? How do we not, um, you know, like, for instance, like, maybe you're the only brown person or the black person at the table. It's not your job to, like, inform and teach other people, right? Right. Um, But you become the person that everybody goes to. And so it's like you you have to learn to put those boundaries up and be like, here's some resources. I'm not here to teach you, you know, mm-hmm. um, you have to learn these things on your own um, and then being paid for the work that you do, you right. know. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of those kind of issues that happen. And um, so it, it ranges. Um, every woman that comes in through my door, whether they're Caucasian or they're BIPOC, they all have different issues. But some of the, a lot of the stuff that I deal with is like life transition, self-esteem, self-confidence, shame, you know, depression, anxiety, um, you know, and, uh, and, and shame, there's like 12 categories of shame, you know? Mm. So there's like, body image, for example, there's parenthood, there's financial, there's relationship, you know, like, it could be what, like, childhood trauma, you know, whatever it is, like, you come in through that door, whether it's for coaching, or whether it's for therapy, and you're like, okay, I don't really know where to start. But this is what I have, right. And I think, I think there needs to be a recognition that, um, women, people deal with things, but being a minority adds an extra level of complexity to how we address problems and the lens that we see things through. Um, Yeah. yeah, So I think we need to recognize that. Tell me a little bit about um, the sun still rises and uh, what that, that is going to look like. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm waiting on, um, waiting on word to declare it to the public. Um, so I can't say anything yet, but I have someone really, really special um, doing my forward. So once they have given the okay, I can then announce it. But the mm-hmm. book itself is a poetry book. It's not necessarily a memoir, but it's about a collective experience of people that I have met things that I have watched, um, you know, and 
it's really about resiliency and trauma, you know, and it's about it. So it takes you from darkness to light. It takes you from struggle to resilience. It takes you from not being loved to being loved. And, Mm. and I want my readers to be when they read the book to feel so motivated, they're going to do something afterwards, you know? Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie um, about Ruth Gators, and I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but she was a judge and her name Ruth was Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So when I watched that movie the first time and I've watched it multiple times, when I walked out of that movie, out of the theater, I was like, Oh my God, I need to do something. I was mm-hmm. so like, right. She's excited. so aspirational. Yeah. And that's how I felt. And like, that's sort of the feeling I want my writers, like my readers to sort of walk away from like, mm-hmm. I can take charge of my life, despite all the trauma that might have occurred, despite all the hardship that I might have gone through, I can still survive and I can thrive and live the best life that I can. And I get to choose and create and be an authority and an empowerment and break that transgenerational like trauma cycle within my family. And like, that's what I want my readers to know that they're in control. Well, I look forward to reading that. And um, I, I love your mix of spirituality and dealing with trauma and creativity and all of those things that meld together. I mean, you're not, you're not just a one lane thinker when it comes to psychology. And I really appreciate that approach. So how do people follow you or get in touch with you if they want to know more about your work? Sure. Um, there's my website, which is www.norpinnacoaching.com. You can follow me on Instagram, which is at Norpinna. Um, there's my Facebook page, which is Norpinna Therapy and Coaching. Um, I'm also on TikTok, where I just like give like inspirational videos and also explain what, you know, some theories and things like that. Um, and that's and my handle is imperfectly acceptable. Um, so things like that. So, yeah. Um, Great. Okay. Well, we will put links to all of that, Nor. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your investment in our lives and just getting to hear your perspective has been very rich for me. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Joe, for having me on here. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author, and on Twitter, jillreillyauthor. Email jill at jillreilly.org.